You have to love the answers that students write in response to history and Bible questions. And uh, these come from 15 to 16-year-olds, and I don't think we had anybody, all our kids about that age are gone this morning. They must have known that I was going to talk about a test. Anyway, <laughs> these are some of the answers. Ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies, and they all wrote in hydraulics. They lived in the Sahara Desert and traveled by Camelot. The climate of the Sahara is such that the inhabitants have to live elsewhere. Another one, the Greeks were highly sculptured people, and without them, we wouldn't have history. The Greeks also had myths. A myth is a female moth. Actually, Homer was not written by Homer, but by another man of that name. Now, Socrates was a famous Greek teacher who went around giving advice. They killed him. Socrates died from an overdose of wedlock. <laughs> After his death, his career suffered a dramatic decline. Now, in the Olympic Games, Greeks ran races, jumped, hurled the biscuits, and threw the java. Now, Julius Caesar extinguished himself on the battlefields of Gaul. The Ides of March murdered him because they thought he was going to be made king. Dying, he gasped out, Tee Brutus. <laughs> I love that one. Now, there's some answers to questions of more biblical nature. One was, Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. <laughs> Moses went up on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments. He died before he ever reached Canada. <laughs> then Joshua led the Hebrews in the Battle of Jericho. The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still, and he obeyed him. <laughs> Solomon, with an M, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> the first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. And then the fifth commandment is to humor thy father and thy mother. I wonder why we didn't sing that one this morning. <laughs> Close. <laughs> so why do we study history anyway? And why is it important? Why is it important to get right answers? Is it just to frustrate students? The common answer goes like this. Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. And I've also read the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Now, to some extent, these answers are true, but some tyrants have learned a lot from history, and they have tried to repeat it. Saddam Hussein wanted to rebuild Babylon and to be king of the earth. Before his death, he'd rebuilt the Ishtar Gate of Nebuchadnezzar II, along with the processional way, where thousands of tourists even go to this day. Adolf Hitler had elaborate drawings and scale models made to rebuild Babylon. He was going to fill it with the greatest art of history, and of course, he stole, those, stole that art from all over Europe, from those that he had killed during the, the Holocaust. Many villains in history knew their military history, Napoleon relied on the tactics of Julius Caesar, who, of course, uttered those famous words when he was being stabbed to death on the Senate floor, A2 Brute, not T. Anyway, so why do we study history? Well, please turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 15, the fourth verse. 15th chapter of Romans, the fourth verse. Page 1384 in the smaller Bibles, page 1585 in the larger Bible. In Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is telling his readers how they can have hope. 
how they can have hope in the most discouraging of times and circumstances, and, and how give, God gives us perseverance when we go through those times, and, and how they can bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. And in doing so, Paul also gives us the purpose of history. Why do we have history? Why is it important to know history? Why is it important to study it and, and what the scriptures say? Verse 4 of Romans chapter 15. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It was written for our instruction. Why? So that, that means for this reason, for this purpose, that we will have perseverance and encouragement and we might have hope through the scriptures. We're going to be looking at how this works in the 78th Psalm in a little bit, but for now, let me put it this way. How do you know that when you go through difficult and trying times, how do you know that you're not going to turn your back on God? How do you know that you're just not going to throw in the towel and say, hey, this Christianity thing doesn't work, that God doesn't work? How do you know that you're going to have hope? How do you know that you'll be able to persevere and will be encouraged to keep on in the faith? Or as we've been asking it in our series on parenting, how do you know that your children, your grandchildren, the, the children in this church will not give up on God and not turn their backs on God when they face difficult times? And they will. They will face difficult times. How can you be assured that they will put their confidence in God no matter what? How do you know that they'll be loyal to God, will persevere and have hope even in the worst of circumstances? It's because, according to Romans 15, 4, they've been taught the scriptures. They've been taught the scriptures in a particular way with particular objectives in mind. They know the stories. They've been taught the stories of the faith. Not only how God worked and was faithful in the Bible, but how he has worked in history in the lives of faithful saints. And also how God works in our own lives. How God answered a specific prayer during a difficult time. Real life stories of faith and perseverance where we declare the mighty works of God. Psalm 145 verse 5 put it this way. The psalmist is speaking to God and he says to the Lord, one generation shall praise your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts. One generation will declare your works to another generation. So, so that when it comes to real life, when it comes to real life situations, comes to temptations and difficulties, our kids, the generation we have told, and other people that we have told, will have the correct reactions, will have the correct responses Godly reactions and godly responses to real-life situations. As will we, if we know and study the stories of faith. And so, Romans 15.4 gives us a biblical purpose for the study of history. And we find that again in the 78th Psalm, where we read, beginning at verse 1. So please turn to Psalm 78 again, the first verse. In the 78th Psalm, we once again find the purpose of history. Why are we to know history? Why are we to tell its stories? Why are we to, to pass it on? It says in verse 1 of the 78th Psalm, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now, in most Bibles, if you look right above verse 1, you'll see a, a little heading. It'll say something like a mascal of Asaph 
or a, a song of, of Asaph. Who is Asaph? This psalm was written by a man named Asaph. And according to 1 Chronicles 25, verse 2, Asaph was both a prophet and a poet. He was one of King David's three chief musicians. And the book of 1 Chronicles tells us that he played the cymbals, he played the harp, he played, played the lyre. And as one of the Levites, he helped lead the music before the ark in Jerusalem. And Asaph wrote a number of psalms. He wrote Psalm 50, and he also wrote Psalms 73 through 83. And most of his psalms carry a particular theme that has to do with God's judgment and have to do with the works of the righteous as opposed or contrasted to the works of, of the wicked. Now, we don't exactly like to put words or music to those particular kinds of, of psalms, you know, and even in this one, he begins with a, a, in a unique way. He says, listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. As a prophet of God, he demands a hearing from the people. Listen up. Don't miss this. And the translate, word translated to hear means more than just hear what I'm saying. Asaph is saying, give ear to me, listen to me, be obedient to my words. It's like when a parent says to their child, now listen to me. It implies obedience. We, we know they're not listening until they actually, actually obey. It's the same here. And when Asaph says, listen to the words of my mouth, the Hebrew language is very descriptive here. It's translated usually, incline your ears. Literally, it says, stretch out your ears to the words of my mouth. Stretch out your ears in a way that results in learning and obedience. He wants his readers to put forth some effort. Don't just sit there. Stretch out your ears towards me. Lean forward in your chairs. Catch every word. Don't miss a, a symbol. And this comes from a prophet who plays the symbols. And so he knew how to get people's attention. Asaph gives us a call to listen and to obey. And then in verse 2 of Psalm 78, he sets forth the history of Israel as a parable. He's telling a parable, but it's also the history of Israel. In verse 2, he tells us <coughs> excuse me, why we should listen to him so closely. The second verse, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old or hidden sayings. A parable, as you know, is a teaching device. It's a story with a spiritual meaning or application. You'll remember that Jesus taught in parables. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew later quotes this very verse from Psalm 78 as pointing towards Jesus' teaching ministry. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when he taught using parables only. Matthew 13 records, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. And Matthew goes on to say that this was in fulfillment of Asaph's prophecy here in Psalm 78. Verse 35 of Matthew 13, Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, through the prophet Asaph. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, the word parable means literally to place alongside, to place alongside. It's a comparison. 
It's a for instance. You know, another pastor in town told me one time, you know, Bill, you got a for instance for everything. <laughs> maybe, maybe I speak in parables. Now, there's no way of knowing whether the parables that Jesus told, were they true life stories? We have no way of knowing that. But we know that they were accounts that uh, were, were very true to life. Uh, the ones that Asaph tells, to put alongside, to give insight and understanding, he begins in verse 9, then all the way through the end of the psalm, clear to verse 72, every parable that Asaph recounted was an actual event in the lives of God's people, how God dwelt with them. But why did Jesus teach in parables? To put it simply, when Jesus was asked, well, who is my neighbor? He could have replied, everybody who has a need. Oh, okay. <laughs> but instead, remember, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, of which all of us here, we can remember, we can recount the story pretty well, and we, have, we know who our, who our neighbor is. From that parable. That's the power of parable. That's the power of stories of faith, which we're going to be focusing on for a few weeks here. And then the phrase in verse 2 of Psalm 78 says, I will utter dark sayings of old. That phrase, dark sayings, refers to difficult questions. You know, if they were on the test, they're questions where you, you probably don't have any idea what the right answer is. The, the answers are not readily seen. They're enigmatic questions, questions that we don't really sometimes understand the question, let alone get the right answer on. And the, the phrase dark saying usually refers to, to riddles, puzzling stories or sayings which the audience must ponder and think about to determine their meaning. So what is Asaph getting at here? The emphasis, once again, is on the effort to be put forth by the hearers. Listen closely, he says. Why? Because I'm going to tell you a parable. I'm going to tell you something hidden. And if you don't listen closely, you're going to miss it. Now, the main lesson of everything that Asaph says in 74 verses of parable in Psalm 78 is this. The lesson is this. We must pass the torch on to the next generation. We must pass our faith on to our kids. It's sort of like passing the baton in a relay race. Life is like a relay race where the baton of values, character, and faith are passed from one generation to another. The baton is passed in the family. It's passed in the church. The runner ahead passes it on, runs by the side for a while, and then... We pass it on to those who come after us one by one. In 1948, which was the first Olympic Games after World War II and all the devastation of World War II, and you'll remember that the France was occupied for, for much of the war during World War II. And, and uh, during the Olympic Games, the French relay team was well ahead. They were favored to win, but the hopes of the nation had been put on these guys. And, they had been devastated by the worst war in history, and, and uh, their hopes were at stake. And the, the first two French runners in the relay race had been amazingly swift. But when the second runner passed the baton to the third runner, it was dropped. And it was a moment of tragedy. The nation saw it as their hopes being shattered. The coach's work went for nothing. The first two runners' performances were in vain, even though their runs were, were glorious. The fourth runner didn't have a chance. And the young man who dropped the baton fell down and wept and wept and wept. 
here today in our homes, in our church, in our community, the continuity of faith is in the balance. The baton of one generation's values and faith is being passed on. As parents, as grandparents, as teachers, as a church, we have a responsibility to pass the torch to the next generation. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 78 go together like this. Dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works, which he has done. Asaph wants us to learn the vital importance of passing along our spiritual heritage to our children. Asaph says, we have heard these things from our fathers. The reason we know them is because they pass them to us. Now we must not hide them from their children. That's strange. Their children because our children are also the children of those who have gone before us. <coughs> and the very word hide in this verse has a very specific meaning. It means to keep something back. To keep something back. To refuse to make something uh, known. When someone was asked to report something, they were often charged not to hide anything. Similar to asking someone to tell the truth, the whole truth, and, and nothing but the truth. You remember when, under Joshua's command, and Israel defeated the town of Ai, and God had commanded them not to take any of the spoils. Don't take any of the loot. But remember, Achan disobeyed and hid some of the spoils under his tent. And as a result, God withdrew his blessing from Israel, Israel, and they were defeated by the Amorites. And when Joshua confronted Achan, he said to him, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide anything from me. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do not hide anything and and." And Joshua says, that will give glory to God if you don't hide it. That will give praise to him when you don't hide it. So Asaph says in Psalm 78, we will not neglect to share with our children what we have learned. We will not refuse them what God has commanded us to share. You see, this was a command of God early on in the life of Israel. It's interesting that this psalm, Psalm 78, begins the parables with Israel's history, with God's deliverance when they came out of, out of Egypt. Uh, look at verse 12 just, just for a moment, where he begins to tell the, the parables, and he starts with God's deliverance out of Egypt, where God, verse 12, wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. And he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light uh, of fire. On that very night that God delivered the people from Egypt, God gave them, gave Israel specific instructions. The specific instructions were to teach their children what God had done for them. He commanded them to hold a yearly Passover feast, and he told them, when you hold that Passover feast, on that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
In fact, the entire Passover feast was designed as an elaborate teaching ritual. In the book of Deuteronomy, God commanded the people through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, only be careful to watch yourselves closely so you do not forget the things your eyes have seen. Don't forget what you have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. But what? Teach them to your children and to their children after them. If we fail to teach our children, if we do not nurture them spiritually, then we are refusing to make known what God has commanded us. We hide the revelation of God from our children And when we do that, we do a grave injustice. Their spiritual nurture is their due. It is their right. It's their proper inheritance from us. You know, what parent would hide his children's inheritance from them? One pastor put it this way. Imagine someone finding a letter after their parents died that read, My dear child, I have left you a great inheritance, but first you must find my will. I have hidden it. I cannot disclose to you the exact location, but I can tell you it's buried somewhere in the state of Montana. I wish you all the best and good luck. You know, loving parents wouldn't purposely hide that thing from their children, that kind of thing. And as I was thinking about this, you know, you've probably heard about that that, that guy who has taken $2 million and put it in a treasure and he's hidden it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And he's put clues on the internet and done all this stuff. At least four people have died trying to find that that treasure. If we fail to teach our children about the Lord, if we do not tell them the stories of faith and the mighty works of God, we rob our children of their true inheritance, the knowledge of God and His will, and we also put them in spiritual danger. Asaph says, What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide these things from their children. Now, wait a minute. We will not hide these things from our children. He says, we will not hide these things from their children because our, those that go before us, our children are also their children. So we have a responsibility. We have an accountability to, to hand it off to the next generation, but our responsibility is not only to the next generation. It's to those who have gone before us as well. They nurtured us that we might nurture others. Asaph, words apply to you whether you have children of your own or not, or whether your children are are grown because someone nurtured you in the faith, right? Someone was your father or mother in the faith. The Apostle Paul, he had many sons in the faith. Those who build into our lives, those who, who nurture us. Now we owe it to the next generation to nurture them. So let me slip in an application here. Many people come to the Lord who do not have these benefits that we've been talking about as children. They may have grown up in the wrong kind of household. They, they came to the Lord later in life without the benefit of hearing the stories of faith and, and how God's work, how God works, but it's still a vital ingredient in discipling people in the faith, isn't it? When they first come to Christ, they're babes in Christ. They're children in their faith from whom we dare not hide the praises of the Lord. We dare not hide God's strength, the marvelous works that he has done. We must tell them the stories of faith if they are to grow, if they are to have hope and persevere when they go through 
difficult times. So what are we supposed to teach our children? What do we pass on to the next generation? Two things. First, we must teach our children the works of God. We must tell them what God has done. Verse 4 of Psalm 78. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. It's a wonderful threefold phrase. And it probably would have been put to music, you know, kind of like our Ten Commandments that, that we sang this morning. But we are to tell the works he has done, the, the praises of the Lord, the praiseworthy deeds he has done. We are to tell his strength or his power and the wonders he has done. We need to share with our children and, 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 and other believers in Jesus Christ as they're growing in Christ. We must share the wonderful works that God has done, praiseworthy works powerful works, works of wonder. Our children should be awestruck at God's wonderful works. And we, should, we too should be awestruck with the wonderful works of God for that matter. Share with your kids, share with fellow believers God's mighty deeds recorded in the Bible. If you want a place to start, go to Hebrews chapter 11. The great hall of faith. Story after story after story from God's word. We also need to share with them about men and women whom God has mightily used throughout history. William Wilberforce, Susanna Wesley, Amy Carmichael, Gladys Aylward, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Brother Yoon. Through Gates of Splendor with uh, uh, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the wonderful recent book, uh, The End of the spear. Powerful, powerful story of forgiveness. Tell them these kinds of stories, but don't leave it there. Share with them your personal stories of how God has answered prayers in your own life. Share with them how God has sustained you and, and did a great work when your prayers were not answered the way you thought they should be. Let them see the impact that God has on your faith and everyday struggles and trials. Before we finish this short sermon series on stories of faith, I'm, I'm hoping to talk about how to record and tell, tell your own stories of faith. And most of all, share with them what God has done through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to bring us salvation. Teach your children the mighty praise of God for his mighty deeds. It's their heritage. Don't hide it from them. And secondly, we should share with them not only the works of God, what God has done, but we share with them the, the word of God, what God has said. Look at verse 5 of the 78th Psalm. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Asaph talks about the testimony, or it might be translated statutes of God, and the law of God. Testimony refers to God's statutes, not man's statutes. It carries the general idea of a warning. God's statutes are his, statutes are his testimony, which are summed up in the Ten Commandments, as we sung this morning. That which is good for us, that which will harm for us. What happens if you do this? What happens if you do this, this other thing? Those are God's statutes, his, his testimony. While law is a more general word encompassing all of God's word to us here. 
So we must teach our children the works of God and the word of God, his law, his commandments, his warnings, his promises. And then notice the long-range vision of verse 6. That the generation to come might know even the generation to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. This command requires long-range planning. It requires a love for future generation and complete unselfishness on the part of parents and those who are here now. You know, it's very similar to the environmental concern we often voice for future generations. You know, what we're doing with this and that and the other thing in the environment and those that come, come after us. Yeah, we have our responsibility and accountability. But how much more important is the spiritual nurture of those who will come after us? And what, does, what result does Asaph foresee when we teach our children in this way, when we provide proper spiritual nurture for them? Verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Asaph lists three benefits here. First, they'll put their trust in God. You know, that should be the greatest hope for our children, the greatest hope for our grandchildren. Not that they graduate close to the top of their class, not that they become a great athlete, not that they might pull down a six-figure income or they might get married and settle down, that they go to a particular college or follow a particular career. And Sure, all of those kind of things would be nice and wonderful, but if they don't put their trust in God, if they don't put God first in their lives, then it's all for nothing. Children learn faith from people who practice faith. You cannot expect to lead your child any higher in the Christian faith than you're willing to go for yourself. So we put God first in our life, and then we demonstrate to our children or those to whom we disciple what it means to trust God in all areas of life and model it for them. Secondly, they'll remember God's deeds. This was Israel's problem. Israel has selective memory when it came to the works of God for them. They conveniently forgot God's miraculous deeds on their behalf, and so they forgot really what they owed, owed God. And Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse, Those who forget God's works are sure to fail in their own. Those who forget God's works are sure to fail in their own. Remembering God's deed is a wonderful incentive in continuing to trust him, to commit all our ways to him, to look for his hand at work all around us. Remembering that God is a God of action will spur us on to good works as you allow God to work through you. And we are to nurture our children in the mighty works of God so that they will not soon forget them. And thirdly, we teach our children so that they will keep God's command. And this is where we're going to have to end it this morning. We need to teach the commands of God. We need to teach his statutes. We need to talk with them about the consequences of disobedience. We need to share with them examples from Scripture. We need to share from our own personal experience. We need to help them understand the biblical principle that what a person reaps is what they sow. And we need to explain to them the problem of sin and how none of us can keep God's commands on our own. So we need to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that Jesus can come and live within, him, within them through his Holy Spirit, 
and enable them to live a life of righteousness and peace. The spiritual nature of our children is the forging of their faith. It's through the careful, loving instruction in the works of God and the word of God that our children will learn to trust God, to remember his deeds, to keep his commands. You know, over the last three or four weeks, we have ordered 54 Bibles <laughs> that we're going to be using in this church. We got, I believe it was... Uh, 12 more, or, yeah, 12 more of the little black ones because we're using those downstairs with the Sunday school class. We got the larger print Bibles. And if you open that cover, it says right in there, if you would like a Bible, please take, take this one. And uh, this last week, we ordered 30 Bibles for the TNT kids downstairs. And uh, we got a wonderful opportunity on those. They're $40 Bibles with a lifetime guarantee. I don't know where you go to when you actually wear out a Bible. <laughs> but a worn-out Bible is, works against a worn-out life, doesn't it? But, but anyway, uh, Sharon and Jerry and the Iwana people are going to be using it with TNT kids downstairs. And so during, is it fourth, fifth, and sixth grade? They, third through sixth grade. They're going to be using those Bibles. We'll keep them here at the church until they get out of the sixth grade. They'll have their own Bible where they'll be able to use God's Word. And so I want to do kind of a, a different thing as we close in prayer today. We're going to ask God to dedicate those Bibles to him that they might be used in the life of these young people. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity of, of being able to, to purchase and order these Bibles, Lord, that so many of them are going to be used with, with kids and young people. And Father, I pray especially that when each one of those kids gets the word of God in their hands, that as they are taught, taught not only the, the words, God, that you have written there on the page, but, but, but taught in a way, Lord, that they will see your mighty works, that they will understand your word, Father. I pray that these, these Bibles will be, be used for years to come that the kids will treasure them and use them and uh, come to understand not only what your word is saying to them, but understand, Lord, that uh, this is your word to them personally and that they will learn, Father, how to study your word, how to live your word, and, Father, how to depend upon you. So, Father, we ask your blessing upon all of the Bibles that... Uh, we have gotten in recent days, Lord. May they be used for your purposes to make a difference in the lives of the children and the people who come and learn here at Grace Baptist Church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.